This week on The Vergecast, yet more Galaxy Fold fiascos. We learn all about how Luminary has screwed up its launch from Ashley, and we'll get into all the leaks from WWDC. Stay tuned. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Greetings, mobile accomplishers. Welcome to The Verge Cast. It is the flagship podcast of The Verge Mobile Accomplisher Zone. I don't know. You know, you, you can tell by me saying greetings, mobile accomplishers, that my name is Dieter Bone, and uh, we are podcasting today without Neli. He is off doing something very, very fancy in another city. However, we're very lucky to be joined by Paul Miller, of course. Hello. And Ashley Carmen is here. Hello. Thank you to everybody who voted for the Vergecast. We won the People's Choice Award for the Webbies. Hey. But I am more excited because Verge Science won in the, also the People's Choice Award, but like the, the full award for uh, Best Education and science channel for video. Um, we've got to post up with some of the best of Verge Science. You should definitely go to the Verge Science YouTube channel and subscribe. It's really great. Number two, if you're listening to this right when we publish the podcast, you're actually going to get this information before we fully announce it on TheVerge.com. We're doing a Vergecast Live at Google I.O. or just down the street. So it's going to be on May 8th, and it's going to be in Mountain View, California at the Computer History Museum. The doors are going to be at 5.30. Show starts at 6. We'll run till 7, and then we'll like hang out and talk to people and have a beer uh, after from 7 to 8. And that should be enough time from 8 o'clock for you to like head back and go to whatever random concert Google decides to, to put on. So you should come. There's going to be very limited seating, but tickets are free. And you definitely are going to want to show up because we are going to have both Hiroshi Lockheimer and Steph Cuthbertson. Uh, they're the people that make Android. Hiroshi makes like Chrome OS and everything else too. Um, but we're going to have both of them on stage talking about the stuff they had just announced the day before. And so I'm very excited. So definitely go check it out. You can just go to theverge.com slash vergecast live. Go look at that URL, pull over in your car, type that into your phone, RSVP. If you're going to be in Mountain View, if you're not, please don't because, you know, limited seating. But first, of course... The biggest story since the last time we Vergecasted, the thing that ruined my life, uh, or at least made it more interesting, was uh, the ongoing saga of the Galaxy Fold. So if you haven't been keeping up uh, since the last podcast, the following things have happened. I published my review. Samsung told me they were definitely not going to delay the launch. Samsung delayed the launch. <laughs> and then a couple more phones up, showed up broken. So, Do you feel you bamboozled? <laughs> Do you feel like a, like a pawn in their game? I mean, I don't feel like a pawn in their game. Although I will say, like, Joanna had a really good review over at the Wall Street Journal. She called it a non-review. And she basically just, the entire thing was her lambasting Samsung for forcing reviewers like us to become their beta testers. Uh, which, you right. know, is true. And then we also got a teardown from iFixit. I was just on their podcast. If uh, you want to go check out iFixit's podcast, talking about that uh, that teardown, what we learned there. So that's the the really quick summary of all of the stuff. And where, where do you where do you guys want to start? <laughs> I want to hear you talk about the fold because, as someone who's just been totally self-absorbed to be frank in my own world i just mm -hmm. like know your world is on fire and it has to do with the folding <laughs> phone <laughs> and then i like i you were in the office last week and i like heard about like i didn't even touch the folding phone i was just like ah, i have oh, tweeted no. i know i should have i should have but like I'm i just sorry. didn't but then i heard all the like i i've heard everything i just want to hear you talk about it more to be honest i mean okay so the last broadcast I, I gave some of my thoughts about the thing um you know, after having review it, like they reify, I was right. Like 
this thing is great if you want a little tablet or if you want a little phone that sucks, um, that feels weird and awkward like a giant remote control. Um, but it means that you don't have that middle zone where you usually use a phone and like waste too much time scrolling through Instagram and Twitter. So I love that. I love having the tablet. I actually like the screen when you're looking right at it and not looking for flaws. But yeah, like it broke. We we went into like the clay drama because like it may have been the molding clay that got in. I don't think it was. I really stand by that. Uh, but we don't know for sure. I just set it out excess of caution. But since then, other people have had bulges appear on their Galaxy Folds. There was a guy from a Swiss publication um, called Blick. And it also happened to Michael Fisher, a.k.a. Mr. Mobile, um, YouTube. And his video was probably up about it right now. I should go check that out. And they had little bumps appear right next to where the hinge pokes through on the on the hinge, on the spine of the thing. Um, so, yeah, it's like it's a real problem. So there's seems now we know a little bit more that there's two gaps, right? There's gaps on the front and gaps in the back of the hinge, right? Those could be the potential yeah. vectors of death. Yes, there's three very obvious vectors of death for the screen. One is you, you pull off the protective layer, which is uh, like yes. <laughs> slapped on there. Uh, two is there's two little holes right at the top and the bottom on the front where stuff could probably get in. And then three, the gaps on the back are actually pretty big. And if they get in there, then they will wend their way through the gears to press up against the back of the screen, which apparently isn't as well protected as the front of the screen. And yeah, and so like Samsung pulled it. They said they're going to release, they're going to do something. They might re-release it soon. Who knows what that means? And they'll probably change the design. I have no idea what they're going to do to change the design. And AT&T sent all of its customers a, a new date. They said it was going to be June 13th. And so I said, is this real? And they said, it's what we're telling our customers. And I said, but is it real? What and they said, it's what we're telling our customers. And I was like, great. That, that, that's the sort of date where they'd have to be able to take Galaxy Folds that they've already built and like yep. disassemble them and then like add one piece of plastic or something like that. Like remember Nintendo did that little tweak. There was some problem with the Bluetooth antenna, which I contend yeah. was still never super solved with the Switch. But they did a little tweak that seemed to improve it. But like so it would have to be a very small change to have to be relaunching this year, basically, right? Yeah, I I mean, let's assume that they've already manufactured a bunch of these, right? To like hit pre-orders and put them in stores and whatever. Yeah. So now they have to decide, are they just going to like light that inventory on fire like their Note 7s? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or uh, are they going to try and like slap on some more protective junk onto the phones that they've already made? And then the question becomes, what protective junk can they slap on there? Can they like put some like silicone on like the the gaps, like the way that the MacBook keyboard, MacBook keyboard has like random silicone underneath it to try and keep dust from getting in there. I don't know. I will say this though. I think that that protective layer was already them slapping on a thing in the factory to protect it after the fact. I don't know this for a fact, but when you look at it, you can see it looks like a screen protector and they, they, it could have gone all the way to the edge of the screen and they could have put it under that weird plastic rail that keeps, holds the screen down, but they didn't. It's just like slapped on there. And I, would bet you a dollar that that was a thing that they did last minute. Because if it was in integral to the display when they designed it, they, they could have easily had it under the lip. Yeah, I think so. I honestly still can't get over the fact that this thing that looks like it should be peeled off isn't supposed to be peeled off and is literally structurally <laughs> integral to the entire device. Like, that's still blows my mind. Yeah, well, and it's also, like, it's really easy to ding. And I guess, like, dinging that thing is better than dinging the actual quote-unquote screen. But, like, it's just, like, bleh. And the rails are not that hard to remove. If you look at the iFixit teardown, they're like, oh, wow, these plastic things come off really easy. You just, like, point a hairdryer at it for a second, and they just pop right off. So, like, they could have, like, popped the plastic rail off, then put a better cut protector on top of it, put it back on. Hmm. Uh, if this theory is correct that they, like, threw it on at the last minute. Well, and like, here's my thing that I'm kind of trying to work through is like, you mentioned the whole note debacle of exploding phones. Yeah. Now they have the folding phone situation. It's like, how? I, I just don't know. Like, can you, can you come back from these things? Like, this is, these are both huge stories. Like, they weren't just like little, like the keyboard situation with the MacBooks. Like, it, okay, like it's, it's going around. People are pissed, but like, I don't know. For some reason, whenever things go down with Samsung phones, I feel like 
it is the narrative and everyone's talking about it. And I'm like, Samsung, man, you gotta, I don't know what you guys have, like, I don't know what they can do to come back from these things. Well, the keyboard thing is really instructive, right? Because Apple has, up until like only a few weeks ago, refused to say anything was wrong for anything other than a small number. They still say that, but they finally said the word sorry for mm-hmm. the first time, like three <laughs> weeks ago. But could Samsung have like gritted its teeth and been like, it's just an anomaly. Everything's fine. We're still <laughs> releasing it. Like, could they Could they have done yeah, that? Yeah, it's true. I don't know. You're, maybe. You're, you're folding it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, at least I guess we're giving Samsung props for messing up at the beginning of their product journey and not like years in <laughs> where all the problems come to the surface. Yeah. But I don't know. You're right. Like, I don't know if they're going to be able to come back from this. I mean, they, they are. They came back from the Note 7, right? Phones were literally exploding and hurting people. And they came back from that. But this is a big reputational hit. It's like the thing that they were using to put a flag down and be like, we are the innovators. Don't look at Apple. Most importantly, don't look at Huawei and their folding phone. We came out first. We're better. Look at us. We're the, we're the best. And that was like their big chest-pounding moment. And um, we couldn't touch the phone. I think it's because of that screen thing, uh, the screen protector thing. Uh, and then we're like waiting and waiting. And then like... Here it is, the big moment, and just everything crashed down. Everything broke. And that's a hit for their like reputation as innovators, which I think is potentially more dangerous to that, to like how they view themselves than, you know, they screwed up on the battery chemistry. Like that's terrible, don't get me wrong. But it doesn't make the people at Samsung feel bad about themselves in the same way. Yeah, and it just sort of sours this whole folding phone conversation in my world. Like you know, this was big. This was like, this is the new frontier. This is the greatest innovation in phones since the iPhone, like all of this stuff. And then, you know, this is the first major release. It's really expensive, but we're promised this awesome future. And then, (laughs) nope, just kidding. We weren't ready for this innovation. We tried though. I don't know. I think it kind of maybe sets the conversation back a little bit. Like I'm going to be a little bit more skeptical now. I always was, but I'm going to be a little bit more skeptical of like, okay, let's see what you guys got now. Like, I don't know. Right. Well, looking at this teardown, it reminded me, like if if you think about what do you have to do to make a really good phone, right? You Mm -hmm. have to get a bunch of pieces and you put them together really small and then you put the you know it, it, it's it's mostly fitting things inside a very small space and then yeah hoping that they join well together and then hoping the like antennas work right here yeah. you're like <laughs> i mean a hinge is just a very different um skill set <laughs> Like, I mean, I'd like to know the background. Like, did they talk to their laptop team about this? I remember I had a MacBook, an early MacBook Air, I believe it was, that um, like a wire that connected to the antenna got Mm -hmm. caught somehow in the hinge mechanism and ended up breaking that like black plastic that kind of hides the the hinge on Mac, on like older MacBooks. Yeah. which uh, was another one where Apple, of course, would never admit that it was at fault for it, even though it was happening to tons of people. But, ju- you know, it's just hinges. Hinges sound so simple in, in, a, in a theoretical sense. But when you put it into this context, it is a very, very difficult problem. I'm not trying to make excuses for Samsung. They should have realized that they hadn't solved it yet. But there's so much more complexity in this phone than in yeah. any standard uh, slab. So this hinge is actually kind of amazing because they have basically there's three hinges on it. Um, the one in the middle is a set of gears that make sure that both sides uh, stay synchronous when you open and close them. So like if you were to like theoretically like hold down the middle and just move one side, the other side would move with it, like butterfly wings that are never out of sync basically, or bird wings that are never out of sync. So that means that it's less likely that the screen is going to twist or contort as you open and close the phone, right? And then they also further prevent that contortion by having two really solid hinges on you know, either side, on the top and the bottom. And that also prevents twisting when you open and close it because it, it makes sure that the thing is really solid. So like, as a thing that is designed to open and close and not cause distress to a fragile thing that's taped onto the two wings, it is... For, as far as I can tell, very well designed, except for the fact that stuff can get in it and then crawl its way through it and hit the back of that super fragile thing. 
I mean, I listened to the Daily episode recently about Boeing's whole drama where basically like their quality assurance engineers are like, there are screws bouncing around near the engines and those screws mm. could literally make a plane explode. And I was kind of just thinking about the fold, which is not nearly as dramatic. But I was like, there's just little spare parts bouncing around in there that can cause problems. <laughs> how does this get through Samsung QA? How well, exactly. does this get to, how does it get into my hands? Mm-hmm. This this like fragile. I think sometimes people just go on t- fast t- timelines, and they're just like, we got this. Do you think you don't. part of it is like protecting against leaks? Like, I feel like Apple, if Apple let 10 employees take the HomePod home, right, they would have discovered the the wood surface problem, right? Right. Uh, where, where it leaves a ring on a wood surface. Like, if, if Samsung let 10 employees take this home and actually use it day to day, they would have noticed these problems, right? I would like to think so. Yeah, unless the problems are introduced when it's mass manufacturing. Because, yeah, if you're building the prototypes in-house, you know, you can make things work potentially. But as soon as you get to mass manufacturing, one person does one thing wrong and Mm. the whole system is messed up. Yeah. That doesn't excuse the Peely layer. That's still just a busted, a busted solution. And dumb, like like, (laughs) completely avoidable problem. Right. (laughs) And I just didn't. So here's my question about this thing. Uh, and And then we can move on. If they had somehow positioned or characterized the fold as like, a developer preview, or not developer, but like a a fancy magical thing, or like I don't know, a luxury, and they like partnered with I don't know a luxury brand. Like it's the Louis Vuitton Galaxy Fold, right? And mm. everyone sort of understood that like nobody should buy this thing. It's just a proof of concept, but we are in fact selling it as like a delicate, beautiful thing that you will put on a shelf somewhere and almost never use. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there'd be less drama? Like they, they kind of like tried to act like this is a mass market phone and it never was. So if they had just been honest about mm. what it is, maybe mm. like the stuff could have broken. They would have been like, yep, told you. The Virtu Galaxy Fold. Right. Magic Leap was a developer kit, wasn't it? When we first saw it and Addy, mm-hmm. I remember was like, this is bad. <laughs> but, right. but it, and they had a lot of hype though. And so I think in that case, there, it, it wasn't the strongest, it wasn't a huge narrative, like, but Samsung is a bigger name than Magic Leap, so, like, it kind of makes sense. But uh, I think they still would have would have gotten beaten down a little bit. But yeah. it would have it changed our expectations, because as soon as you're saying we expect potential, potentially millions, I don't know, thousands, millions of people to buy these devices, yeah, we're going to expect to see something really great and superb. Well, and just, like... If you're going to sell it like a normal phone, I should be able to treat it somewhere close to like a normal phone. Mm-hmm. I should not have to like wear white gloves and, you know, maybe it broke because I, I was in New York that week and New York is just fundamentally a dirty city. New York <laughs> will destroy everything. I get one season out of my shoes. My phone cases yeah. are so dirty. Andrew, his phone case is like scary. Yeah, New York is nasty. It'll do things to you. It's bad. Are they ever going to release this thing? Is it done? I I would normally say I think it'd be done, but I really feel like they have too much pride here and are like, mm-hmm. we will make it work. But I don't know. I mean, it seems pretty done to me, but I don't know. I don't see how they take this specific device and convert it unless there is some method that I don't know of to make the, the gaps in the back and the gaps in the front dust proof. And then obviously you'll have to like sell it like like triple wrapped in like three different warning brochures about, <laughs> about taking up the screen protector. All right. We've got an ad coming. We're going to be right back and we're going to talk about Luminary. And I'm just going to laugh about RSS standards for the next 45 minutes. It's going to be great. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. 
you can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. All right, we're back. Ashley. Yes. Please give me feelings about RSS because that is where the Verge lives. <laughs> I know. I was talking to Jake before I get into it. And yeah. I was saying, I was like, man, we just need to do like an explainer of RSS because it relates to the story and like it would just be really useful. And we were like, who could we talk to you about that? <laughs> <laughs> and then we knew. We knew uh. who. And he is on this podcast. Okay, so RSS is actually, like, I'm making jokes. It's actually the smaller part of the story. The bigger part of the story is there's this hot, shit, new podcasting app called Luminary. And I think I get it, but I also totally don't get it. So, like, what is the story with this app? Yeah, so basically, for people who don't follow the podcasting industry, there is this startup named Luminary. They raised $100 million in venture capital. They bill themselves as the Netflix of podcasting, quote, unquote. Very original. Kill me um, already. <laughs> <laughs> and their whole business model is that, and how they're going to completely change the industry, is that they've recruited a bunch of really famous people. So people like Karamo Brown from Queer Eye, Lena Dunham from Girls, uh, Trevor Noah from The Daily Show. And then they've also recruited a bunch of big names in the podcast industry. So Manush Zamarodi. Guy Raz, a bunch of other people too. And essentially what they're doing is trying to build out an exclusive network of shows that you can only access on Luminary. The catch okay. is that you have to pay $7.99 a month to hear those shows. So in principle, it's like the nice way of saying this is it's like the HBO of podcast apps, right? You get the special shows, you actually have to pay for it, but there's no ads, right? Exactly. So, But here's kind of the catch is that you and I could go download Luminary right now and use it. We won't be able to ex- use the to access the exclusive shows, but the free tier allows you to use it like any other podcast player. Oh. And people are pissed. Like, <laughs> they are mad. So The Verge slash me, I wrote this week that before Luminary launched, they confirmed that The Daily, The New York Times is big show, mm-hmm. and all the Gimlet Media shows like Reply All, Heavyweight, as well as Anchor Shows and Parcast, all of those entities, except for The New York Times are owned by Spotify, wouldn't have their programs on Luminary. Okay. Why not? Because I can get all those programs on Pocket Casts. I can get them on Apple Podcasts. I can get it on Google Podcasts, although I don't use Google Podcasts because Google Podcasts is not good. I'm sorry. Maybe it's gotten better. I'll give it another shot. Don't at me. I still like Google Play Music. Just kidding. That is also garbage. <laughs> but I can get all those all those free, all those podcasts on any other podcast app. Why do they refuse to be on Luminary? So let me read you a couple quotes of statements. I got a statement from Anchor and I got a statement from the New York Times. And both of them are very interesting to me in different ways. Okay. So, And one of the quotes is foreshadowing. So... <laughs> The New York Times said that they were, you know, very proud of the daily whatever it's and that they are going to be, quote unquote, judicious about where it's placed, which sort of suggests that the New York Times just has this whole strategy around like where they're going to place their prized podcast, because the daily, of course, is huge. It's like probably we don't know, but I would imagine it's one of the biggest shows in the world. Like it's it's very popular. Um, And so there it seems like they are getting 
very specific about how they own the relationship with their listeners because that is a they they that drives subscribers to them to their paper. It's a big relationship, and I think they want to own it and they don't want to give that to Luminary potentially. So is there is there any podcast app where you're not allowed to listen to the daily? Like you can get it on Spotify, right? You can get it everywhere that I'm aware okay. of. So yeah, this okay. So this kind of to me suggested maybe there was and the New York Times has other shows on Luminary, just not the daily. So I don't know what their inner negotiations are like. I don't know if it could have been something where it's like the New York Times is like, let's see how much traffic these other shows get. And then maybe we'll give you the daily or like, let's see how this goes. I, I don't know. Okay. If, if, it, if it helps you understand the editor, this is like when Google makes a website, and but they don't want it to work on Firefox. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. This is mean. <laughs> okay, so that's what the, that's what New York Times said and then Spotify, Gimlet, Pat, whatever all that whole all those podcasts. Gimlet and Spotify didn't say anything, but Anchor had a really interesting com- comment. So Luminary tweeted this thing. It's a whole story where basically they said podcasts don't need ads. And that's when the industry really turned against them because they were like, we mm. do need ads. That's how we support ourselves. Like, how dare you say this? We all don't have $100 million in venture funding to fund our shows. So that was kind of – so Inker hinted at that. But then they go, because Luminary's business model is new, unproven, and frankly opaque – in how it plans to monetize its free tier, we are being especially cautious regarding the potential to automatically distribute Anchor creators' content without knowing exactly how it will affect their podcasts. Okay, so that seems to imply that before this thing launched, everyone's like, oh, you're going to try and yank ads off the free tier, and that's going to kill us. So yeah, no. they. it sort of suggests that, yeah, when I got that statement, I was kind of confused because I was like, what, what could they do to the shows that would impact creators. Like, if you have ads built in, you know, what would they do? Would they, like, try to just add more ads? Like, I was really confused about it. Yeah. Let's just run through this real quick of how, like, a podcast typically works. So, typically, like, The Verge cast is hosted by a hosting provider. It's hosted somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And if a listener wants to listen to the show, Mm -hmm. that player pings the server that hosts our show. And that's how it works. And then that hosting platform is able to tell the creator, the IP addresses, which helps them know where people are located and what type of device they use to access the show and like how they did it. That's really as much data as podcasters get right now. Um, Except sometimes with Apple Podcasts, you can get like data on like how far in people listen. They're they're starting to provide a little bit more of that. The players are starting to get a little more interesting, but like from the hosting provider. Right. So Luminary, it came out today, that is using, it is using a proxy server. So it's actually adding an extra step to that. So instead of the listener clicking play, the player going to the server where it's hosted, what's happening on Luminary is you're clicking play, you're going to Luminary's server, then Luminary's server is pinging the server where your show is hosted and it's bringing uh-huh. it back. Right. Which Luminary said today, so people were in... I mean, a tizzy. Everyone is upset (laughs) about this because, well, for one, it seemed that there were copies of their shows living on Luminary servers. That's not what happened. Truly, it was just a proxy server, according to Luminary, from what I can tell. But Mm -hmm. what was more interestingly happening is that on the hosting provider side, they weren't getting the IP addresses of their listeners and instead were getting the IP addresses of Luminary's proxy servers. Right. So, this is like super nerdy, but this is no, really, this is great. really important because if you're a podcaster, again, you have really limited data compared to like the Facebook ad machine or something that you have right. for the web. So, that IP address is super important because right now the industry is moving to things called dynamic ads, which means essentially you can insert ads and it can be sophisticated. Like you can target to people in New York or target to people in the US or whatever. I'm not sure how much people are doing it, but that's where the industry's headed. Right. And that only works like the like me as a guy talking to my microphone isn't going to be able to do that. But the company that dis- that I choose to distribute my podcast, mm-hmm. their hosting server where the exactly. MP3 file lives, is, they that could be that could have software that's sophisticated enough to do dynamic insertion of ads instead of just the stuff that's baked in. Got it. Exactly. And so they, they need that information to accurately serve your ads. Right. And so when Luminary is sending basically this fake IP address, it's messing up how people actually monetize, which is terrible. 
second weird little thing that just I was like, damn, was <laughs> podcast advertising is really starting to get sophisticated. Like this industry is up and coming. It's beca- it's trying to be more like the web and Facebook ads and how banner ads are served. And so the IAB, which is the Interactive Advertising Bureau, recently introduced standards to try to make mm-hmm. the discussion a little bit more even and make it clear like what an ad is, how traffic is counted, things like that. They explicitly say that if traffic comes from a server or something else that isn't an actual listener's IP address, that has to be thrown away. That data doesn't count. So one of the hosting platforms I spoke with was like, not only do the people who host on our platform not get information about their listeners at all, but those listens don't even count because we have to just throw that data out because according to the IAB, it's it's trash. It's not real data. So that happened, which I realize this is so wonky. And like it was no, so funny incredible. because when I was telling the original story about the Daily and the Gimlet shows, I like ran in my roommate's room and I was like, dude, you're not going to believe this. And I tell him and he literally stared at me with just like the widest <laughs> eyes like, okay. Hey, <laughs> and I was like, "All right, I realized when I said that out loud that no one cares, but is insanely wild." So the the reason this is so fascinating—I mean, one—I make the joke about RSS, but like when you use a podcasting app, whether whatever it is, it's basically like using an RSS feed on your computer. Mm-hmm. It goes to the server and it says, "Hey, show me your text file of what's new." And then the server says, here's all the new stuff. And you're like, cool, I'm going to download that one. So there's two things that could happen with the proxy server. One is they could like re-host your RSS feed, which means you don't know how many people are subscribed to you. Two, they could re-host your files. Three, they could not give you the actual IP address information. So like, there's, a, there's a, no fewer than three different ways that having a man in the middle between you know, the podcast app and your servers could like screw up your data. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah, and like the even stranger part about this too is that Luminary's reasoning of like this streamlines because the idea of having these servers, I mean the hosting providers have servers around the world and the whole idea mm-hmm. obviously is like it's faster for me in Japan to get the file from a server near me than in California or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it could either be, if it's a direct pass-through proxy, how would it be faster? They'd have to cache it, right? That's This is the whole thing, is like, their reasoning doesn't make sense to me. Like, they're adding an extra step to this. Mm. And I'm, I'm not understanding, like, maybe you guys can explain, but yeah, I'm not understanding how adding an extra step helps streamline a process to make it faster for listeners. It would certainly be a, a cheap and easy way for them to gather uh, <laughs> analytics data on what people are listening to instead of having to have the app self-report that up to, you know, via some other channel, maybe? Sounds like, a, sounds like a great way to earn $100 million from VC. I mean, the, <laughs> obvious, the obvious comparison is to like a, a, a CDN, like a content delivery network has, uh, you know, Right. That's exactly it. But you sign agreements with the CDN. You tell the CDN right. that it's okay. <laughs> right. So that they they have the right to copy your data to their local server so that then it's geographically closer. But if you yeah. just th- – th- this sounds like they, they've implemented an, a VPN, which makes <laughs> right. no sense. Yeah, as it's – and so anyway, like – Kind of closing the loop here, right before we got on the show, Luminary issued a statement. They tweeted it as well. They said something like, you know, we realized that this caused confusion. And it's like, okay. That's because that's it's confusing. Yeah, like, I should also put here that, like, I don't know, and from all the people I've talked to, I don't know of any other player that does this. Spotify doesn't use RSS feeds for most yeah. shows, um, but it's a whole different beast. And like you, you manually put in your URL to your RSS right. and you're agreeing like, Hey, I'm okay with you ingesting my RSS feed in return. I'm accessing Spotify's massive audience. And also I get a cool analytics platform. Right. It, the reason people are really upset with luminaries, there was no explicit consent given here. No one even knew it was happening. And I think, I mean, this is just like total theory, but like looking back at anchors comment, I sort of feel like they saw this coming and that's why they were talking about the creators because this really does hurt creators. It's been fixed yeah. now according to everybody, but 
Uh, Stitcher might have done something weird way like like five, eight years ago. Um, but your point about creators, I think that's the reason this is like, like I'm excited because like drama about CDNs and RSS and proxy servers. Um, but the actual thing that matters here is podcasting to a lot of people feels like the last bastion of the cool, good, fun, open web from 2003, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like the last place that hasn't been ruined by Facebook instant articles and uh, omnipresent Google ads and Amazon ad tracking. Mm -hmm. And it's still a place where, like, you know, you can make your own little podcast and it's yours and you can figure out how to make money on it or not. And you release it and you have a direct relationship with the person you send it to. Um, Like, there's a whole culture and ethos around podcasting, Mm -hmm. Um, even though it's gotten professionalized and stuff like The Daily exists, that is, I think, what made everybody feel so angry and under threat is like, here is one more company trying to ruin the last good thing on the internet. Absolutely. That's partially what's going on here. It's a super tight-knit community. You know, I haven't been reporting on it all that long, but I've already met a bunch of people because it's really tight in and everyone's super cool and nice and like loves to support each other. Yeah. But now it seems like, yeah, pe- people don't. I, I think really the issue came in here when it was like, I think processes like processes weren't followed. Like there sh- it seems like maybe discussions that should have happened months ago didn't happen or like things were implemented that just didn't necessarily make sense or I don't know. That's that's kind of the impression I'm getting. And actually, I should say here that Tuesday's episode is going to involve me, Neelai and Nick Kwa, who's an amazing podcast reporter, going even deeper on this luminary stuff. And Nick is hilarious. I'm so excited to talk to him. But yeah, so people who are into this should absolutely stay tuned. All right. Listen to The Vergecast next week, the interview episode. You'll get that. We actually need to move on and we need to talk about all this WWDC stuff because like we've been like kind of dipping in and out of it. But if you actually just go back and look at the articles that have been published on 9to5Mac since February 10th, there's one, two, three, four, five, six. And then there's some like tweets on top of that. It seems like the whole thing is just like they've just got it all. We just we know what all the software is going to be. And not only that, it feels like a feels like a big one. I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's um, maybe just because I'm focusing on all the details here. But there's some some pretty major stuff. Um, so WWDC's June third, and I I feel like the narrative is uh, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but th- Apple's like you know what iOS is great. We did so good. Let's bring <laughs> it to the Mac. Yeah. So they're like, okay, well. We should have a real cool name for that. And so they called it Marzipan. No, well, so, yeah, but no one's supposed to know, even though it's in the code anyway. So they haven't <laughs> given it an official name. Like when they when they announced this last year, I'm like, what do I call these things? They're like apps. I was like, no, 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 no. Apple's never said the word Marzipan out loud? That's correct. Oh, man. Great, <laughs> great little tidbit there. Okay, so yeah. Marzipan, <laughs> which is basically it's it's the iOS app development, like UI kit, right? Yeah. Uh, which is what developers use to build iOS apps, is is now you can use those tools to build Mac applications. And it feels like what's happening is as they have to add features to support things that you do on a Mac, there looks like they're going to be adding those features also to iOS. So one of the hot new r- rumors that's been quote-unquote confirmed um uh, Steve Trout Smith and Nine to Five Mac are saying this mouse for iPad, right. which is as an accessibility feature. But it makes right. sense because if you if because one one of the things that's being rumored here is that there's just gonna be a drop down like or a checkbox. You you say yeah, this app works on iPhone, it works on iPad, and it works on Mac. You just check that box if you're an iOS developer. Yeah. Uh, so so the Apple is clearly hoping to get a glut of iOS apps. But to do that, those apps have to be completely controllable with a mouse and keyboard now. So right. that means there's going to be a tons of apps that now support a mouse and keyboard. So you can have a mouse and keyboard on your iPad. And I don't know, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty exciting to me. <laughs> but but it's, yeah, it's interesting. I guess I didn't see it coming in this way that by bringing iOS to the Mac, they'd have to bring a lot of Mac to iOS. Yeah, I think that's the core point for me. That's like the thing that makes me most excited about it. Um, have either of you used the Marzipan apps on a Mac that came out like, you know, last year? So we're talking news, 
Stocks. I, <laughs> I check my stocks app every day, Dieter. Um, I use Apple News on my Mac, but other than that, there's um, the Home app. The Home app is in particular like hilarious and bad on a Mac. Um, oh, the Voice Memo app too. Um, they're really bad, and everybody everybody in the Mac world hates them right now. Mm-hmm. And so the the big the reason the stakes feel so high is if these become the new ways to make apps for the Mac. Well, they've been really bad so far. Are they going to make them good? I I hope so. <laughs> well, a hot a hot new rumor um, mm-hmm. is that they will be able to support multiple windows. Yes. Imagine this: one application with multiple windows open at the same time. Magical. That's a great feature that I love in Mac applications. Uh, but interestingly, that will also be a, a, a boon for um, iPad. Uh, there's there's a, a rumor that there'll be these detachable panels. So, like you know, a lot a lot of uh, iOS applications um, when they scale up to the iPad. Uh, l- some contextual menus are, are little panels. You might be able to rip those off and put them wherever you want on the screen. Um, it's still unclear if, if you'll be still constrained to like one split of the screen or if that will be able to hover over like a, a, a two split screen okay. or if you're going like full windowed. So is the idea like in an email app, like I'll be able to like have multiple drafts or multiple emails out and windowed. So like you can't, you don't have a full windowing system, but like inside each app you could have like particular things that like is like picture in picture but for every app basically so like any app can be like this this thing could be a picture in picture element and then you can like rip it off and have it float over the other stuff i i more think of it as uh, i i uh, one i don't actually know at all <laughs> but, but cuz i've seen the word like Oh, oh, just a, like it said, maybe there's just actually just going to be windowed applications in in yeah. iPad. But w- but I'm thinking more like think of contextual menus like like in Photoshop, right? You've got some text that you're editing in your main view, right? And you then you have a contextual menu that you can change the font size and change the font, and you know, or you can change your brushstroke. Those sorts of like contextual menus, those I think are what what is being rumored that will be. A, be kind of be able to be ripped off and put possibly in a stack of items, uh, which is pretty wild. Okay, but yeah, windowed iPad. There's a rumor that the uh, the Lightroom will be able to access files directly. It's like they're just reading Neil's review of the iPad now, <laughs> just fixing everything. And then another interesting thing is is so there's a rumor that the iPad will be able to be used as an external display. Yeah. Which um, you can do now with either Duet or you can buy this little uh, dongle that plugs into a, a, your, the side of your Mac, either USB or DisplayPort. Um, but built-in seems better. Well, and the cool thing about this rumor of how they're going to uh, supposedly implement it is the the green button, that, which on the Mac is the maximize button, like to go mm-hmm. full screen, will have somehow more things to it including possibly finally real window management on a Mac, but they're wow. also an, op- <laughs> yeah, I know it's crazy. I'm not going to get my hopes up for that, but uh, <laughs> the one option might be like, put this window on the iPad, which would be, I mean, that would be pretty slick. Yeah. Huh. I'm bullish on dub dub DC. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited for there to be like just something new and interesting on the Mac just cause that that's been a minute. Mm. Um, but I'm also super excited to see if like all the stuff that's on the Mac is going to push back to the iPad, and it sounds like it is. And uh, well, okay, I have two questions, two thoughts. Uh, so the other, one of the other rumors we may have mentioned this before is they're going to break up iTunes. Well, okay, iTunes is going to stick around, but it's going to become like legacy. Basically, iTunes is going to be the Windows XP uh, to the other apps in the way that <laughs> Windows XP exists to Windows 10. It's still there, hiding in the background, but you never open it. But every now and then, you have to. Oh. That's what's happening to iTunes. Those right? system it's, preferences, like the real yes. fiddly ones. <laughs> yeah, all the all the weird crap that you need to do with your iPhone or with mm. your music library or movie library, whatever. It's still going to be there, but it's going to be hiding in the background, mm. like an old classic Windows thing. Um, and mm. instead, they're going to give us a music app and a TV app and a, a podcast app and whatever. I don't know. Like, do you guys do you guys care about? Like, are you excited to have better music apps on your Mac, or are you just you gave up and you're using you're using Spotify and you have an open iTunes? in two years anyway because that's that's me i haven't like does it's not gonna affect me i mean as someone in the podcast reporting beat i'm thrilled to have podcast broken out as its own app 
Okay. And we've seen hints of it. Like the web app now has like podcasts.apple.com. Right. It seems to be kind of, it definitely seems like it's probably coming. And also just writing about it. It's like, you call it Apple Podcasts, but I'm using iTunes to look at podcasts. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So yes, I... I mean, I don't buy movies or anything like that. But for, for purely podcasts, that to me is actually like a really good change. I'm in the slow process of, of making myself not dependent on Apple for anything. Mm-hmm. So this is not really going to affect me in any way. <laughs> um, and yeah, to answer your earlier question, I have not used Apple News. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my take. I think they're going to make marzipan apps slightly better, but they're not going to go as far as like people that actually like live on and care deeply about crazy stuff you can do on Macs. They're not going to go that far. Like they're, they're apparently going to add Siri shortcuts to the Mac, uh, which is really interesting. They're going to take the shortcut stuff, and that's mm. going to eventually replace Automator, which is sad because I love Automator. I don't know. The, Automator will be will be there just like old Windows too. I'm sure. Mm. Anyway, I think Apple should lean all the way in and make all of these marzipan apps the default on the Mac. They should replace the Mail app with the iPad Mail app. They should replace they should replace the browser with the, the iPad Safari browser. Like they should as many apps as possible make the default the thing that they're pulling over from iOS. And everyone will get super pissed. But then everyone will actually be using those things on a Mac and it will force them to more quickly add the features that will make them more useful on a Mac, and therefore it will force them to finally get over this weird hang-up they have about nerfing the iPad and keeping us from being able to do the stuff we want on it. I don't use any Apple Apple app. <laughs> I'm, who are these people? Like I Everybody, literally, I, I mean, this is why. Like, really, that's yeah. so wild to me. Like, this is just a world. Like, again, I literally click on the po- iTunes what could eventually mm-hmm. be the podcast, solely because I check in on our show and also because I'm, like, monitoring. I, okay. I, I don't know what could make me start using Apple's apps other okay. than... Okay, uh, here's, a, here's, a, here's an experiment. Like, this is... We're in, the, we're in the... Are you using a Mac right now, Paul? Yes. Okay. Everyone, open your dock, look at your dock, and mm-hmm. tell me what Apple-made apps are currently in your dock. I have one, two, three... Four, if you count settings. I have one, two, three. I have the App Store. Does that count? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, Why I do have, you have the App Store in your dock? I don't know. <laughs> like, I need to just throw that out right now. Okay. <laughs> I, have, I have three. I have okay. Terminal, Messages, and Keychain. Yeah, so I have Finder, Photos, System Preferences, and Preview. Yes, I also have Finder. I have yeah. yeah, I have Finder, too. I didn't count it. Okay. Um. I have notes. I have iTunes. Oh yeah, see, you, you use way more. You use way more Apple apps than I do, actually. What? You use All my notes on the web. I on the yeah. Mac. Yeah. yeah, but if you're an iPhone user and you're like in that system, Notes is great. Yeah, that's Notes true. is really good. I weirdly Whatever. don't have iMessage here because because I'm using a work computer. If it was my right. own, I would like sync my iMessage yeah. for sure. That is the one thing everybody uses: iMessage on their laptop. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, well, and that's a big question mark because are they going to make that marzipan? It seems like they are, but like, how are they going to build it? Is it going to be able to do the stuff? It's very confusing. Well, then they, wasn't there the rumor too that they were bringing? Um, what was it? They were bringing like reactions or something over? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, but like, there's like no way the they're going to rebuild that or something. For the Mac. Like, they're going to. Everyone's like, been waiting yeah. for it. The fireworks are in iMessage now. <laughs> I I feel like the way Apple could could win at this, right? I I um. I just clicked on iMessage, or sorry, it's called Messages to open it. Uh-huh. It was it was three bounces. Also, I I, I literally can't find it. <laughs> it's somewhere. <laughs> um, oh no, it's beach balling. Great. It's probably confused because I've been slow. Okay, now it's loaded. I mean, however long that was, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if 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 it, let's say in a crazy world there's a web alternative to iMessage, right? I'm using the web alternative, right? Sure. Like if, if if Apple's mail app is three bounces and then a beach ball, I'm gonna use a a, a shortcut to Gmail, and I'm gonna hate Gmail the whole time. But but if Apple, it'll feel yeah, it it's fine. It it, it 
it's not worth the hassle of of setting it up on one computer because you know when you set something up in a web app you know that's accessible to all your devices all your computers and it's fine if you're setting something up specifically on your machine you have to get a, i think a little bit more value out of it than a web app but if if you could if all these apps were just one bounce like pop right up give you yeah. some useful information like right now I, I i actually have i lied i have used apple news to see how how it was and it's slow like mm -hmm. it, it takes like five seconds to load a page and it's like that's that's what i go to the open web for <laughs> if they just do it everyone will grumble and then it'll get sure. better um because like the thing that we have heard from the mac world for literally 35 years since like the mac has been if you try and make a universal app like write once run anywhere it will be bad and that applies both to the underlying code that runs it and the look and feel and ui of the app itself right so if you just try and make everything java it's going to run it's going to run like meh across everything and it's going to look bad across everything but if you make an app and you make it feel native to the platform if you make a mac app in its bones truly deeply a mac app and it like works with all the Mac stuff and it's a Mac app, then that's great. But you shouldn't just take an iPad app and just slap it on the Mac. That's one of the reasons that they feel like a bunch of people have been rejecting these apps like bad organs, like bad organ transplants, right? So I don't know how Apple is going to take that story that it has been telling and all of its biggest Mac fans have been telling for the past 30 years, and they're going to be able to turn that. Like Trying to be like, no, 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 this is the right thing to do is going to be really hard. I do think it's the right thing to do, even though, you know, I prefer more people use the open web and blah, 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 simply because, like, just from a, a very, very utilitarian viewpoint, um, I care more about the iPad turning into a real computer than I do about the Mac feeling like it has foreign apps on it. Because yeah. I'm already using a bunch of foreign apps on the Mac because I use the web. <laughs> I'm in a very similar spot. Like, especially, I think especially like the iPad is great, and and I love the iPad, but I think it is still very, very much a luxury device. I mean, maybe maybe that's debatable, but it feels very luxury to me. But so many people have iPhones. If people who have iPhones can do real computer things, that means more people in the world can do real computer things. Mm -hmm. You know, like if 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 a kid who gets a hand me down i iPhone can, uh, you know, open dev tools in mobile Safari and, you know, start console logging and make the yeah. great uh, next great, the Facebook killer that I've been waiting for. <laughs> well, apparently, speaking of Safari, uh, I, I don't think they're going to give us like full desktop Safari. Um, mm -hmm. Although when you say that, people say it is too full desktop. No, it's not. Um, but they are going <laughs> to like make a list of websites where they're going to request desktop site by default instead of just giving you the the mobile site kind of blown up, which is what happens on a lot of websites. Mm. That's so, nice. That'll be nicer. All right, we uh, we got to take a break. But we're going to come back. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit of phone stuff. It'll be fun. So stick around. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We're back with Ashley and Paul. Paul, mm -hmm. every week, 
without yep. fail. It's consistent. Every time. It's the same. <laughs> What's it called? It's called Android tablets are a real gift to humanity, and I think we forget that sometimes. <laughs> not true it's objectively a lie i feel like we have been so mean to android tablets we're always saying why aren't you it's like it's like talk it's basically like like a middle child i'm a middle child i know this from experience why aren't you like good first child that's how we are with android tablets why aren't you like ipad but then samsung shows up with the galaxy view 2 a 17 inch tablet that it's releasing through at&t so that you can watch all your favorite at&t tv shows like game of thrones uh, on a 17 inch tablet i don't know it's just so special it's 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 a it's a wild west like you go to the drugstore to get ibuprofen and behind the counter is like a 50 dollar android tablet running probably i don't know lollipop yeah oh my god i just looked this up in the picture yeah, isn't it amazing is a woman holding this huge device <laughs> it looks so fat no, it's, it's because it folds out into like a tent mode thing. It's got this giant oh. fat thing on the back of it. Okay, well, the way she's holding it, that just is, it's terrible. It's huge. Yeah. And then someone, a man is sitting next to her with a bowl of popcorn. They're just about yeah. to enjoy <laughs> their favorite film. Can you <laughs> imagine having a friend over to watch a movie and then the, the, your big reveal is that you guys are going to watch it together on your Samsung Galaxy View 2? <laughs> <laughs> wow. But like, okay, we were talking about the, the fold and like just having a big screen is nice. Like mm-hmm. this is just like if you're watching a movie on an iPad in bed, you know, this is like why I bought a Pico projector. You want like want mm-hmm. a little bit bigger screen. This is just like unapologetically a big, dumb, cheap screen. The, well, this, relatively cheap. The, this fa- I do a lot of my my like late night YouTube like laying on my side. Like I'm I'm really actually about to fall asleep. And yeah. so so I've I, I if if I had this device, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like my right eye, um, let's say I'm laying on my right side. My right eye is basically at bed level, right? So the right edge of the screen, from the distance from the right edge to the left edge of the screen, needs to be not much further than the width of my two eyes. <laughs> yeah, but you're you're, you're by yourself. Two, like if you got other people. You want something bigger. I don't know. This doesn't really oh, solve thanks. the problem for me. I mean, okay. I don't own a TV, so uh-huh. I ha- I watch on my laptop. And yeah. if I'm watching with a friend, it's like, okay, we're gonna like put the laptop on the table or whatever. We're just or I'm gonna have it on my lap. <laughs> we're gonna watch it like that. <laughs> like that's how we're gonna do this thing. Uh, this kind of doesn't help. I mean, a little bit. It's a little bit bigger than the laptop, sure. But I you mean, still have to find the table in bed. Yeah. It's not gonna be great. You're gonna have to put it on your lap or something. This is a this is a 17 inch 1080p screen, <laughs> which is not great, and it's 740 dollars, which is super not great. Yeah, like, like this is wait, this is this is too expensive. Every That's 17 really inch expensive. laptop at Best Buy is is likely cheaper than this. <laughs> uh, okay, we've got just a cut, just a little bit of phone news stuff at the end. Um, there hasn't been like super new rumors about the Pixel 3a, but um, there has been like Google tease that they were going to announce it, and we've seen some renders, and that we may, may have also seen some news that it's going to come to T-Mobile. I mean, they have to announce this thing at Google I/O, right? I have no idea. I didn't know yeah. we needed a 3a. Do you think we need a 3a? <laughs> so okay, Verizon and AT and T just like had their quarterly results, and they have their worst upgrade numbers ever or in a long time right wow. and so one people are not wanting to buy super expensive phones so maybe like a cheaper phone would do the job and like we've been saying for sure. a few years now if, if you're using android you can get everything you want except a good camera in a cheaper phone right it's always like it's been they're fast they're actually built pretty well they've got they do everything you want except for like have a really good camera and so presumably the Pixel 3a is going to have the Pixel camera. And so if they can get the price down, they will instantly be like one of the best like sub $500 phones. The and question the price, is, can they get it sub $500? Yeah, the price will be getting down just because of less build quality. That's yeah. the idea. Well, and also a slower processor. It's going to be using the, I think it's a Snap 640. I, mean, I also saw like, what is it? Google Fi has like a deal on the Pixel 3 right now. It's like 400 bucks or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, you got to sign up for the new carrier to do that. 
Uh, and, you know, it's also, like, old from October. Like, part of the deal with the 3A is, like, it's a little bit weird that it's off-cycle. Like, they should have announced it next to the Pixel so that there's a bigger price disparity, but they're announcing it right when the Pixel itself is getting discounted a bunch. Right. Oh, I feel like the Pixel 3, it, the Pixel is already off-cycle. I'm, like, yeah. it's, it seems like Samsung released a phone right around when they could get an 855. Yeah, and um, and Google's going to release the Pixel Four, theoretically, six months after you can get an eight fifty five. Yep, yep. It's it's been a problem for them for a while now. Mm, I'm into cheap phone. I yeah. um I especially I don't, I don't know uh, the Pixel Three was my first Android phone in a long time, and um, I have been fairly disappointed, and I and I want to I, I want to a b test it a little bit with another phone that's not from Google. I'm fine with a cheap phone because I don't think the phone needs to be that precious to me. Basically, if I'm gonna have this sort of unreliable of an experience, like half the time the phone doesn't ring, and yeah. I don't know why it doesn't ring, but I just missed all these calls, and I don't know why. Um, if I'm gonna have an unreliable experience like that, I want to spend like two or three or four hundred dollars most on a phone, right? I don't. I don't want to get an epic flagship to be to feel kind of janky like this. Yeah. But I also don't know. Like maybe there's another uh, Android manufacturer that pays a little bit more attention to the end-to-end -end experience that I might like better. I'm. Th I'm. I'm a little jealous of your of your uh, Galaxy S10 life right now, Dieter. How like. You know, if Apple put out like an SE or something like that, like mm -hmm. a, a cheaper, smaller, whatever, like a m more budget type phone, I could see that being, you know, really nice as someone who wants a budget phone and Apple. But with with Google putting these phones out, like, is it a move just to get more people on Google devices? Because there's so many, you know, more budget Android phones. So is Google just kind of being like, we can do this better? Like what... I'm kind of curious, like, why they feel like they need... Because to me, it was always like, Google did their flagships, and it was like, you're going to get the amazing camera, da-da. I mean, yeah. like, they said they'll bring the camera maybe to this, but, yeah, I guess I'm just wondering, like, what the strategy would be there. I mean, historically, the strategy, going back to the Nexus, was we're going to show you how to make a good Android phone follow along. Um, they don't really need to do that. Samsung makes a perfectly good phone without them. Now it's like, we're going to give you, like, the Google experience. Um, I th Honestly, I think they just want to sell more, right? There was a, they, they're actually doing better than you'd expect in the U.S. right now. If they're serious about making money on hardware, they need to sell more phones. And they need to sell more phones and get people to upgrade those phones and stay inside the Pixel world in the way that people stay inside the Apple world. So I, I honestly, I don't know, maybe, maybe they have some, like, very high-minded idea of, like, spreading good Google design to more people and making good cameras more accessible and blah, 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 blah. But I, like, on, my guess is like they just want to sell more. That, yeah. That's kind of it. Um, and they think that maybe price is kind of what's keeping people away. Oh, for sure. Like, I think that the value proposition for a Pixel phone is actually really tough to make at those like $900 prices. Like, it's super hard when you can get a Galaxy S10 for the same price or an iPhone 10. Yeah, I guess we don't we don't have any like pricing speculation. But yeah, I guess if it was like I can buy the Google phone or I can buy like an Alcatel phone, right? Then you'll I'm going to get, get the, the Google, Google phone, phone for sure. Now, the big question is what's going to happen with the OnePlus 7, because uh, we have the launch event. We also have the story for Vlad that there's going to be a OnePlus 7 Pro. So it seems like the they were the previous king of like really good $500 mid-range phones. And, you know, these feel like you don't have to compromise, even though you did. So they're like actually moving up in price tiers, and they're going to try and take on those flagships head to head. And maybe they'll be the, right, the regular OnePlus 7 will be cheaper. Who knows? But like... I don't know. It's really interesting. At the same time that OnePlus is like moving up in the price tiers, uh, Google's going to try and slide in, hopefully under. I don't know. Fundamentally, I think that Google's going to end up charging too much for this Pixel 3a. Like, I really think that they're going to. We're going to hear the price. We're going to be like, oh, hmm. well, that would have been cool, but I guess not. <laughs> yeah, it's still expensive. <laughs> yeah. Is it, do you think that the renders for the OnePlus Seven Pro have a pop-out camera? That's very exciting to me. That could be very exciting. Yeah. Like in a world where I, I I don't get to have a folding phone, maybe at least yeah. I could have a phone with a pop-out camera. It's a little consolation prize. Honestly, <laughs> yes. I am here for that reality. Yeah. I would love a little pop-up camera. I would break it in two seconds, guaranteed. <laughs> but I would love a pop-up camera for the little bit that I do have it intact. It is creepy every once in a while you're looking at your phone and you're in that certain light where you can see all the cameras on the front and like, oh my yeah. gosh, 
I'm, I, everybody's <laughs> looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> On that creepy note, I'm ending the first class. <laughs> We're um, watching you, and we definitely know your IP address. Thank you for downloading say. this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again for voting for us and Verge Science for the Webby Awards. If you're going to Google I.O. or you can be in Mountain View on May 8th, head over to theverge.com slash vergecastlive to RSVP for our live Vergecast with Hiroshi Lockheimer and Stephanie Cuthbertson. Uh, thank you, Ashley and Paul, for joining us. Ashley is on Twitter. She's Ashley R. Carmen. Paul is yeah. Future Paul. I am Backlon. Stay tuned. Next week, we'll have the interview about more luminary drama and another Vergecast. Rock and roll. Paul. Ashley, say promo code. Promo code. There it is. 